I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is the second and final installment in our two-part mini-series, Escaping the Pit. When my dad died, I was broke. Well, not, you know, broke, broke, but Abby, my wife Abby and I were making just enough money to pay rent on our Portland apartment with enough leftover for groceries and baby food. And that was about it. And so I had to dip into our savings account for enough money to buy myself a last-minute plane ticket to Georgia just to go to a funeral that, like most funerals, everyone wished wasn't happening in the first place. So I talked to a friend of mine before I left, and he had been checking in on me ever since my dad had died, asking if I needed anything, praying for me. And I told him that I was leaving for the funeral, but Abby was staying home with our new baby, and he asked why she wasn't coming. And then when he found out that neither me nor my brother Patrick had enough spare change to buy tickets for both ourselves and our wives, he would have none of it. This was Abby and Vanessa's father-in-law, someone that they'd known and loved. So he bought plane tickets for both of them last minute so that we could all be together. When I got to Georgia, whirlwind of chaos, I was surprised to discover that my oldest friend, a friend that I knew was likely as strapped for cash as I was, had also bought himself a plane ticket and was there in Georgia just to be at the funeral. I didn't ask him to come. I didn't ask my friend to buy those tickets. It would have been so much to ask, I figured. It didn't even occur to me, and I didn't expect either thing to happen. But both of them gave of themselves time and money as gestures of self sacrificial love. And I think about that often, both of those gestures, some of the nicest things that anyone's ever done for me. I doubt I'll ever forget them. Open your Bibles to the letter we call Philippians chapter 4. Next Sunday, the plan is to begin our annual vision series, which if you're new to Van City, that's kind of our time to come together as a family, remind one another why we're here, what we're doing, and as long as we're here and as much as it depends on us, what we hope to see happen across the coming months of our church. But before that, before we start our vision series, I wanted to take a couple of Sundays to make space for a conversation that's been sort of ever-present these last few months, and that is money. So uh, here's a disclaimer. If you're not, you know, part of Van City proper, if you're just visiting or checking us out, feel free to listen in. But this is kind of inside baseball. This is family talk. You're more than welcome to um, obviously be a part of that conversation, but don't feel like this is impressed upon you in the proper sense. We have been in this ongoing vulnerable conversation every Sunday about Van City's giving and the budget and what may or may not happen as we work to grow as a family in the spiritual discipline of generosity. Now, last week was all about um, the teaching of Jesus, about what it means to be a person of self-sacrificial giving. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to the podcast. All that was a setup for tonight. Tonight, I want to put pen to paper, so to speak, and talk about the practical stuff. I want to walk us through an update of the financial future of Van City Church. So we're going to start, as usual, in the scriptures with the letter we call Philippians. Now, for context, Philippians is a letter written by a man called Paul, and most of the letter is actually a thank you note. Paul was in prison, we think in Rome at the time, and at the time of writing, he was in jail because he was preaching this treasonous message against the Roman Empire that Jesus is actually Lord. He's the actual king, which means, of course, by at least implicitly, that Caesar is not the actual lord, is not the actual king. So Paul was eventually arrested as an enemy of the state, locked away in a Roman prison. And in the Roman prison system, things like uh, food and water and clothing, they're not provided for you. So prisoners would rely on family and friends to take care of them while they're locked up. People had to come in and give them resources just so they could stay alive. Now, Paul is actually, at this point, more than a thousand miles from Jerusalem, where the earliest community of Jewish disciples of Jesus had first set up shop. He's in the heart of the evil empire, and he is actually, we think, starving to death for want of provision. So this is really serious stuff, the winter of the soul, so to speak. But then when things are going really bad, Paul locked up, starving, this guy called Epaphroditus shows up. Epaphroditus belonged to a church that Paul planted in a city called Philippi. When Paul was nearing the brink of death, Epaphroditus journeys to Paul in his Roman prison cell on behalf of the Philippian church that Paul planted with money and food and water and clothes for Paul. 
So Paul was saved. And then, deeply moved by this gesture of generosity, of self-sacrificial giving, Paul sent a letter back to the church in Philippi, which is, among other things, a thank you letter. Now, let's stand together as a gesture of reverence and respect for what we believe is the inspired and authoritative scripture. Let's read from Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share, me, share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in King Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. These words are inspired by God. Thanks. Go ahead and take a seat. So Paul begins with this section of the letter saying, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. He said that that word rejoice can be translated as celebrated. And in fact, uh, another way of translating that entire sentence is, I am having a great celebration in the Lord. I am partying in the Lord. And that word renewed is actually a botanical metaphor in Greek. The image he intends to evoke is of a flower that's budding in spring. So Paul is saying that in the bleakest winter of his life, the generosity of the Philippians was like the thaw. It was like the hope, like spring breaking through the cold. And then he goes on, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, the text doesn't mention specifically why the Philippians had not yet had a chance to express their concern for Paul. It could have been their own poverty. They had no resources to give. It could have been that Paul was really far away, so the trek was dangerous and difficult. Who knows? Either way, whatever it was finally changed, and the church in Philippi can now express their concern for Paul with money and food and provision, and Paul is celebrating, even though he's still in prison. He says that he's having a great party in the Lord in his jail cell. And then he goes on to say, verse 11, I'm not saying this because I am in need. So that's weird, right? Starving to death in prison seems like a pretty cut and dry case of need, if you ask me. You're not celebrating because you were in need and now you're not. Then why are you having a great party in the Lord? And he goes on to say, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Now, Paul is not turning his nose up at their gifts. Remember, he just said he's celebrating. This strange, paradoxical train of thought, I was not in need when I was in need, becomes a teaching moment where Paul, who's master apprentice of Jesus, will impart something profound to the church in Philippi. Though he was in real circumstantial need, like he actually needed food or he was going to starve to death, he says that he already had everything that he really needed in Jesus and was thus content. Now, arguably, the most famous psalm of all time begins with the line, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore what? Exactly. I shall not want or I lack nothing. So Paul goes on to say in verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. That much is clear. And I know what it is to have plenty. He's enjoyed seasons of having everything provided for him. I've learned the secret, he says, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, the word secret is a Greek word that was also used in ancient Eastern mystery religions that required initiation rituals to sort of gain secret knowledge, almost like a cult-like status. You enter in to the divine secrets and, you know, your third eye is opened or whatever. And Paul 
claims to have that secret kind of, we think, in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. I've already got the secret religious knowledge, and it is the secret of being content. The spiritual riddle that everyone wants to solve, I've already got that. I am satisfied. I lack nothing. This is a universal human desire, contentment, that is, or peace, and one that continues to escape the needy grasp of most human beings on the planet. Think about it. How many of us can say, I am fully and truly content right now, here tonight, in this season of life, in this stage of my apprenticeship to Jesus with everything going on and not going on, I lack nothing. There's nothing else I need. There's nothing else I want. The big blue genie erupts from the little golden lamp and says, what'll it be? You can have anything you want, anything at all, and you would say, I'm actually good. Thank you. If we're honest, all of us, I would wager, myself absolutely included, would admit that we have stuff on our list. Even the rich and famous are still reaching for something. In 2016, comedian turned eccentric mystic Jim Carrey he presented at the Golden Globes Awards, and it was an award that he had already won twice, and he framed the event like this. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey going, to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe-winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. it would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. Obviously, it's funny, but the line that sticks out to me is when he says, then I would be enough. Then I could say, I don't want or need more money or status, or stuff. I'm fine with my marriage or my singleness. I'm good with where I live and what I do. I'm fine with what I have and have not done and accomplished. I am content. Now, that doesn't mean that you no longer have desires or dreams or ambitions. It just means that regardless of what does or does not come to fruition, you are satisfied at a deep soul level fulfilled. And here's Paul saying, I have figured out how to do that. I'm already there. I'm not partying because I wasn't content starving to death in prison, and now I am content because I have food and clothes and stuff. He's saying, I was actually fine. That's not what the party is about. And lest anyone argue, well, easy for him to say, remember, he's in prison. He's on the brink of death by starvation and exposure. He's been beaten by soldiers, run out of cities. He's on trial, poor, persecuted. He's seen church plants rise and fall. He's seen his friends come to faith, leave their faith behind. He is, I think, in the best place to teach us about contentment. And notice a few things here before we move on. First, contentment is apparently something you learn. Paul writes, I have learned the secret, meaning it doesn't simply occur to you. Contentment is unnatural. It is not the default setting of human beings. When my life, my own life, is overflowed with reasons to be content, I have willingly overlooked them all to instead focus on that which I do not have, and I allow it to make me entirely discontented. Contentment is not natural, 
but it can be learned. Secondly, true contentment is not contingent on outside circumstances. Now, few of us say we think this, but most of us do believe, either deep down or right there on the surface, that when we get X, then we will be content. I remember I was uh, traveling circa 2002, which I guess is some 20 years ago, my God. And um, geez, that just occurred to me. Anyway, I met this young man. And uh, he had opened his home to us and some, you know, our little traveling vagabond group of people. And he had this thing in his hand in the morning. I got up and I was reading my Bible because I'm a Christian. And, uh, you know, and this guy walks through the room and he had something in his hand that looked like a smaller version of a Nintendo Game Boy, if you're old enough to remember that. And I was like, oh, what's this thing you're carrying around? And he told me that it was called an iPod. Now, while I was traveling the world with dozens of CDs in a zip-up binder. You remember this, Mike? Mike had a gigantic, it was like one of those, you know, full-on two uh, or, you know, four on a page and really huge, heavy zip-up binder. This dude told me that he could store almost 100 albums on this little white brick and he explained the totally efficient and not at all cumbersome process to me. So you load your existing CDs into your computer's CD-ROM tray, one by one, and then the computer will transfer each track digitally, very slowly, onto the hard drive. Then you meticulously type in all the song titles and artists and album names, and then you plug in your iPod via USB, you transfer each file over to the iPod, again, very slowly, and then presto. An hour or two later, you're ready to listen to music, which was incredible. If I were a cartoon, you'd have seen, you know, a thought, a thought cloud appear over my head and me in it. My giant CD binder would have vanished with a pop as my entire library of discs, my, my disc player, my headphones, all transformed into this tiny little device that would travel around the world with me inside my pocket. I had never imagined such a thing in all my life. Oh, man. I went from not knowing that this thing existed to desperately wanting it in an instant. And I couldn't believe how practical it was for me. This is something that could really do me good. And then I heard the price point. It was, at the time, $399. That, the conversation was over. It might as well have been a million dollars to me at the time. When would I ever have $399 to blow on something that I wanted to buy. And even though the iPod was totally unattainable in my world, I remember thinking and talking about this stupid thing as if it would one day solve all my problems as I dragged, you know, several CD binders around everywhere I went. Me and Mike used to sit around and be like, oh man, if I got my iPod, I would get this version. They kept coming out with new ones. He was the first one to get one. And we're all like, let me hold it, let me hold it. He couldn't even enjoy it. Now, today, this is true. 20 years later, I have access to an unfathomable library of music all on one device at any time, at any place with no cords to hook up or uploading or transferring or even purchasing, really. And I buy records, physical records, and listen to them on a system with headphones bigger and more elaborate than my CD Walkman ever was. More money or more things can be fun. I don't mean to create this ridiculous idea that they can't get you things that you actually enjoy. In the short term, yeah, it could be great, don't get me wrong, but they never truly satisfy at a soul level. They typically feed a smoldering human desire for more money and more stuff. But Paul argues that there is a secret to dousing that fire. It doesn't mean that stuff can't be good. Remember, he was happy to have food and provisions and to survive the winter, but that's not the secret to contentment. He says so in verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So the secret apparently is Jesus. Shocker. The end. Let's pray. And man, that quote sounds amazing. You, if you lift this verse right out of its context, you can hang it on walls and quote it to get people motivated and encourage somebody on a bad day or before the ball game or something. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You can win the race. You can face the big meeting. You can endure your stressful week. And that's not all wrong per se, but in context, Paul is saying that he can be content whether he has money and food and stuff or not. We tend to believe that self-sufficiency is the secret to contentment. When we have enough money and stuff, when we're not scraping by but comfortable, even though our comfort level keeps going like this, not dependent on other people, then we'll be content. 
The problem is that all of human history is a case study in the fact that this never works. And really, Paul's need was only one reason why the gift from the church in Philippi was important. Keep reading in verse 14. He said, it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when they first came to faith, when I set out from Macedonia, now this is the region near Philippi, meaning right after Paul left that church, not one other church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except only you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So Paul is celebrating this church in Philippi specifically specifically because they're mature in an area where many other churches that he had planted were lacking at the time, which was generosity. Here in Philippians, Paul is just heaping praise on the church in Philippi. He's saying, listen, I have traveled all over the empire and back. I have planted church after church, and you guys get it. He's proud of them in other words. And he goes on in verse 17 saying, not that I wanted your gifts. What I wanted was that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to who? God, right. That's weird. Wasn't the gift for Paul? Remember that later. In verse 19, he says, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Obviously, there's a lot there in the text, but one dimension of the text is clearly the concept of giving. This has been a conversation for us every single week for a long time now. Throughout the New Testament, disciples of Jesus teach and embody the practice of giving finances to sustain the church for the work of the kingdom. And that's where we're going with the rest of this teaching tonight before we begin our vision series next week. Now, I know we're already knee-deep in this thing, but before we wade out into the deeper water, I want to set down a disclaimer here. Many of you, I know, probably have some level of bad taste in your mouth uh, when it comes to the idea of church and money. If you're younger than 35 or so, you've likely seen a lot of corruption. Maybe you've had a bad experience or you're skeptical of the authority in the church. And even if you are a model churchgoer, something in you maybe tenses at the mention of money in a church by a pastor. And yet here we are. I realize all that. I don't take it for granted. That said, I can't really do this teaching without being particularly candid about what this text is saying and what it has to do with this particular church. So what I'm asking is that for the next little bit, you suspend judgment, do your best to hear me out with an open mind, even for just the next few minutes, and try and be as receptive as you can to what the Spirit might be wanting to say through me and the text. Now, there's a bit of inside baseball about our church. If you're new or just dropping in, again, pardon the family talk, really, This has to do with all of us either way. So are you all right? You guys good for the next few minutes? You still with me? Thank you. Great. Now, this is a text about giving, so let's talk about that. As you know, uh, I'm a contrarian by nature, so before we spend the bulk of our time on what giving is, let's just address a few common misconceptions about what giving is not. To begin, if you're taking notes, giving is not tipping. Tipping is throwing a few extra dollars to the church when you happen to think about it or have particular excess, or hear that we're doing bad with the budget. (laughs) Giving is not tipping, and tipping is not giving. Nor is giving paying the church for goods and services. Now, there is a pragmatic component to giving, and, and we'll get to all of that in a moment, but giving is not financial compensation for a service provided every Sunday. There's a reason that we call this the gathering rather than the church service. We're not performing a service. We're gathering together as a family of disciples of Jesus. Um, if you think of it that way, you inevitably run into all sorts of weird problems with giving, and you can become hesitant to give until you understand and approve of each and every function of the church to ensure that your payment is well-deserved according to your terms. But giving is not a reward for the church doing a good job. It's not even necessarily an approval of every single thing the church and its budget does per se. Now, don't get me wrong. We go to great lengths to be above reproach with our budget. I'll tell you all about it before we're done. But giving, as you'll see in a moment, has more to do with you and God than it even has to do with the church budget. 
I've been going to and working within churches for years now, and I've really often heard folks who refuse to give until they know exactly where every dime is headed and ensure that it harmonizes with the way that they would spend a church budget were it entirely up to them. And again, churches should absolutely go above and beyond to handle their finances with the utmost integrity. But is that really why we're reluctant to give? because we're skeptical about each and every line item on the budget. I asked a mentor, a friend of mine, someone who's been working with church plants for decades now, uh, early on in the Van City story about giving and, and how, it, how a church grows in the spiritual discipline of generosity. And he said, look, the specific details of the church budget are rarely, if ever, the real reason someone is reticent to give. It's usually something else, meaning... We might tell ourselves and other people that we don't give because of some budgetary concern, but chances are something else is going on in us. We're hurt, or we don't trust the church for reasons, good or bad, or I should say understandable or decidedly less so, or we're wary to wade into what we feel are like the wild waters of self-sacrificial generosity and what that'll mean, how much that'll cost us. But giving is not a tip. It's not payment for goods and services, and it's not a reward for a church doing a good job. And finally, giving is not a scheme cooked up by churches and pastors to get rich. And yes, as I've already mentioned, much evil, we all know this, has been done by church leaders under the guise of encouraging their churches to give. There's whole movements based on this. There's scandals and documentaries. We all know that. But that's a problem with people not with the concept of giving itself. Do you realize that one out of every four teachings from Jesus of Nazareth was about money? What if a quarter of every single sermons here at Van City was about money? One time a month, a long teaching about money. Like it or not, money is wholly inseparable from your discipleship to Jesus. It is profoundly woven into the very image of God in you. Generosity, faithfulness, justice, peace, contentment, all that stuff is tangled up in the way you spend your money. Lots of folks squirm at the idea of openly discussing their finances with the people in their community. The idea of opening your bank account to someone else in your community and being like, look, this is how I spend all my finances. This is what I make. This is how much I give. What do you think about that? But imagine if someone were to say that they didn't think it was proper to discuss, say, prayer with their community. Maybe someone else in the community would say, well, okay, but how are we supposed to talk about Jesus if we can't talk about prayer? I would argue, even though I know that this makes us feel uneasy, the same can be said about the way that we handle our money. The way that you spend and save and keep and give or hoard your money is part and parcel of how you follow Jesus. So let's just start with this. This, what I'm about to say, is not in any way theologically controversial. It's not a minority position. It's not in any way really debated on a theological level. In the worldview of the Bible, giving is good. God made it up. It was his idea. Tonight's text is only one small example, but in it, Paul writes, it was good of you to give. And this fundamental, foundational idea in the Bible is based on one very simple notion that the Bible also makes abundantly clear. God is generous. God gives. And I want to be really clear about what that means. If you're anything like me, you hear, oh, God is generous, and you think of like some kind of stoic, wealthy, powerful being who sees fit to bestow blessing on those below him that are nipping at his heels for resources. You think of it kind of like, oh, Jeff Bezos putting five bucks in a bell ringer's bucket. Like, oh, isn't it so good of him? But the biblical idea that God is generous is about God's innate state of being his personhood, his character. It's not an attribute of God. It's part of who God is at the core. How many of you know or have known a person who is by nature deeply generous? That's just who they are. They can't help themselves, even to a reckless degree. I've known people like that. They're rare, but it's a beautiful thing. It has nothing to do with how much they do or don't have, if you know a person like this. They just readily and happily give of themselves because for whatever reason, that's who they are. They like to do it. God is generous more so than that. 
He can't help but be generous because he can't violate his own personhood. God is always inherently generous. And because of that, God's generosity, we breathe God's oxygen. We get God's love. He doesn't have to give that to us. He gives us himself. We can be, through no effort of our own, reconciled to God with whom we were enemies. We can be known by God. We can know God. We can be healed and restored. We can be given hope and a future. We can have a place in God's family, adopted as sons and daughters, all because God is generous. That is just who he is. God does not qualify his generosity or withhold his giving from us. Think of that line from James that we studied weeks and weeks, that he gives generously to all without finding fault. It's an incredible idea. That's just who God is. And when you emulate God's generosity, you tap into the character of God and you can know him better. When you tap into God's generosity, you tap into God's contentment, the idea that you can lack nothing. And in doing so, you can be set free from discontentment and from greed. And this, too, is a gesture of God's generosity, that we get to know him and draw near to him and emulate him and then become like him is only possible because God is generous. Giving is God's cure for greed. It's the cure to the ever-elusive idea of more. It's God's cure for fear and anxiety. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's a reason that Jesus' teaching about money and possessions and resources is immediately followed by anxiety. And being a person who lacks nothing, who's free to enjoy God, is not scared about resources. Jesus himself taught that his disciples, or he taught this so much that his disciples went around saying this as one of his most beloved teaching. The Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Of course, few of us really believe that. And fewer still live as though that was true. But there it is. And this idea is crucial to Paul's understanding of how a church functions. Remember, his context, the context of his letter is church, a church plant, church resources. And he writes that it was good for you to share in my troubles. You Philippians know in the early days of my, your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out for Macedonia, not one of the other churches shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. So Paul, in this paradigm, is the church leader, or you could call him the pastor of the church. You might call him the elder or overseer of the church. And in his mind, there is a partnership between himself and the people of the church through the giving of finances. We are in this together. He says, we make sacrifices, we share. This isn't about profit and loss. It is not about developing a business or a brand. This is about the kingdom of God, and we are in this together, or it does not work. The leaders of the church, not just me, all the leaders give much of their lives to teaching the way of Jesus, working to guide and shepherd and serve others in the way of Jesus. Not perfectly by any means. You all know that already. But that's why we're here. And because of that, the church in Philippi came to know Jesus and to learn to follow him well. That they came to faith at all was because there was a church. And because there was a church was only because there were finances to keep the church alive. It's not payment for goods and services. It's generosity. It was good of you to share with me. And when that happens, the kingdom of God grows and spreads and flourishes. Now, I realize that we're a small church, and obviously we are anything but perfect. But over and against all of that, and in spite of our best efforts to wreck it, God has been very, very kind to us. This has been a place for years now where God has shaped disciples of Jesus, a place where God has renewed faith a place where God has healed people, a place where men and women have come to faith for the very first time. Many of you know this all too well. This has been a place where God has spoken over and into people's lives by His Spirit through the men and women in this community, a place where men and women have learned community for the first time, accountability and vulnerability with all the ups and downs and bumps and bruises and imperfections. This has been a place where people have cared for one another and they've met needs and they've faced tragedy together and held one another up and walked through those things together where we've sacrificed 
for one another. We have held one another up. We've celebrated healing and breakthrough and marriages and kids being born, a million kids being born all the time. This has been the very first place that my kids and many of your kids have learned stories from the Bible and come home telling their parents about them. Just the other day, Levi and I were up here rolling up cords, and my son Beck, who will be nine next month, he kind of came up here and was talking to me, and Levi was trying to talk to him, and he was giving Levi a bit of an attitude, you know, because he's uh, eight and he knows a lot of stuff. And <laughs> Levi joked with Beck, saying, oh, okay, Beck, you don't want to talk to me right now, but when you were a baby in the church nursery, I used to have to hold you all night just so you wouldn't cry. And all of a sudden, my mind was absolutely blown. That is the freaking kingdom of God right there. My kids don't know another church or another community. This is where adults have loved them and known them and told them about the Bible. They come home telling me Bible stories that they learn. And maybe that doesn't seem like a huge deal, learning a Bible story on Sunday night, but don't underestimate the power of these stories. These are the same stories in which Jesus himself grew up steeped week after week in the community of God's people. And ever since the church began, we have set out to steward these resources with as much accountability as we possibly can. Ever since the church began, we've set aside 10% of every dollar that comes into the church to give back away for justice causes, both locally and internationally. And we, this tiny little group of people, have been able to give tens of thousands of dollars to orphanages, to refugee care, to justice causes in food banks and local school and lunch initiatives. And it's easy to get all romantic and pretend like that requires no money at all and that God only cares about our hearts and not our wallets. But that's not an idea shared by Paul or the authors of the New Testament or Jesus. Jesus taught that the way you spend your money reveals what's in your heart. And it takes time and work and electric bills and rent and salaries and guitar strings and kids' curriculum and coffee. And that's not bad. It's just the way it is that those things require finances and time and energy but when you share with us in the matter of giving and receiving, you are contributing to those stories. All those little stories, every cent that comes in goes back out into those kingdom causes. We don't like to think of, say, you know, Van City Kids as something that we pay for, but it costs a lot of money to have things like curriculum and buy snacks and crafts for the kids. Just ask Taylor, who works so hard um, week in and week out to make this thing happen. When you give, you contribute to all those things. But remember, it's not just the pragmatic aspect of giving that makes it a worthwhile endeavor, that makes it good. Paul even writes, I don't need your money. <laughs> what I want is for more to be credited to your account, for you to grow and have joy and be free, and for you to learn the secret that I already know. Now, the prosperity gospel, which was once famous among like televangelists and Benny Hinn, Joel Osteen and the like, continues to live and thrive amongst celebrity megachurch pastors and certain wings of the kind of new charismatic movement. The prosperity gospel argues God wants you to be rich. And if you give to God, he gives back to you financially, that is. But what did Paul get for all his giving to God? Prison, for one. <laughs> and then ultimately execution as well. The idea that God will give you stuff if you give is not at all what Paul is getting at here. For one, Paul himself is on the brink of starvation in jail. He's given his life for God and is as impoverished as one can possibly get. He cannot even meet his own needs if he wanted to. But Paul does mean that there is something in it for you when you give. And he's not just talking about money and stuff. What's in it for you is much, much better than stuff. You grow and you mature, and you tap into the heart of God, and you battle greed and discontentment, and you experience what it means to lack nothing. Those are all for you. The only problem is, if we're honest, we still think that money would be better. And the only way to learn, to experience the truth, is to practice, to actually practice giving. So, that's what giving is not. What is giving? First, giving should be generous, not stingy, not, as Paul wrote, not reluctant 
It should not be an insignificant portion of what you have, not just a little off the top that you would never notice either way. It should be generous. And notice I keep using that language of giving. If you've been around the church for more than a minute, you've likely heard tell of a concept called tithing. The tithe was a Hebrew concept, a word that meant 10%. And it was this ancient spiritual art form dating all the way back to Abraham in which God's people willingly gave 10% of their income and resources back to God as an act of worship. Now, when I was a kid, I would get my allowance on Saturday night. It was a dollar, a dollar a week in dimes. And the reason that I got it in dimes is because one of those dimes had to go plink in the collection plate that got passed around on Sunday because, and I'm honestly, uh, it sounds snarky, but I'm deeply grateful that my parents taught me the art of tithing. By the grace of God, because I was taught this as a boy, it is something that I've carried on into adulthood and to this day. I get to begin with 10% out of every paycheck, and I give that back to the church. And that's not all I give, and it's not the only place that we give, but I start there. That's the starting point. Not because I have to do that, because it was imposed on me, because it's a rule set by God. I'll be in big trouble if I don't do it, but because I get to worship this way. 10%, every single check. And I don't say any of this to sound self-righteous. I didn't make it up. It was taught to me. It was actually imposed on me as a small child. And by the grace of God, I've just continued it on into adulthood. I didn't just decide to give a dime off of my measly dollar. I would have preferred to keep the whole dollar, if I'm being honest. But I'm grateful because I've learned that the more you make and the more you have, the harder it becomes to part with any of it. It's 10%, but giving a dime is actually a lot easier than giving hundreds of bucks and then giving thousands of bucks or whatever it is for you. And I can't tell you how often I've heard people say things like, I really want to give. I'm just super impoverished right now. When I get a better job, I'll give. Or when I have a little extra money, I'll give or whatever it might be. And there will always be an excuse and it will not get any easier to do. But even if you embrace tithing, we tend to frame it poorly in the church, and as such, it becomes largely misunderstood. For starters, people misunderstand tithing by assuming that they are giving God 10% of their money. But really, God is letting you keep 90% of his money. Everything, the air in your lungs, everything you have, your body itself, according to the scriptures, it's all God's. You are not your own. And when we understand that, little by little, we're freed up to stop worrying about our stuff and start enjoying God's stuff that he so generously gives and be blown away by the fact that he lets us keep the vast majority of it. The other way we misunderstand tithing is by assuming it's some kind of black and white rule. It isn't a rule in the strict sense, to be clear. It's wisdom, I would argue. It's, it's time-tested, ancient wisdom from the story of God, from the God's people, It's a spiritual discipline for sure. It's a way to embrace generosity as a quantifiable act of worship. You can put numbers on a spiritual discipline. But interestingly, in the New Testament, the language shifts from tithing, which is 10%, to radical generosity. And this is important because for us, and please listen to me when I say this, for the vast majority of us, 10% is not generous. It is not self-sacrificial giving. For a lot of us, I would wager, I guess, we probably wouldn't really miss 10% all that much. It isn't for me, honestly. It disappears from my account, and I don't feel a thing. It doesn't change me because I don't feel it. I don't even notice. I get a little receipt from the app we use, PushPay, that's like, you gave this much. I'm like, oh, yeah, nice. And then I archive the email right away. So Abby and I we set out to give more, and we do. And there are all kinds of ways that you can do that. We, you know, as a family, we budget for generosity after our tithe. So we give 10% to the church. And on top of that, you know, we sponsor a kid through Compassion International, and we have justice causes that we donate to, or we have money set aside in our uh, budget that we have together as a family for generosity, you know, buying people dinner or things like that. All kinds of things that you can do to embrace generosity and actually see on a bank statement 
Good, we're spending more on generosity than we're taking for ourselves. Because even if you are below America's poverty line, you still make up the wealthiest 10% of the human population. And I say that not as guilt at all, but as perspective. It's pretty easy to give painlessly because most of us have more than we need, but less than we want. So dispensing with excess is, quite frankly, hardly noteworthy. And though the old expression sounds tough, I actually find it to be theologically helpful, and it was for me in my journey toward, you know, simplicity and generosity. Give until it hurts. Or put another way, you should feel it. You should experience the act of giving. Giving should, in other words, cost you something. And if this thing seems at all heavy-handed, remember, our paradigm for giving is based on who? Jesus! God, in Jesus, revealed to us the true depth of the Father's willingness to give until it hurts. So costly generosity isn't about being hardcore for the sake of being hardcore and making everybody feel really guilty until they shell out all kinds of finances for the church. It's about tapping into the heart of God, discovering what He already knows, disciplining ourselves to feel generosity so that we can be shaped by it over time. One of the world's most beloved Christmas stories is O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi in which a husband and a wife, if you know the story, here's the spoilers for it, um, they each part with their most treasured possessions in order to buy a single Christmas gift for the other because they're so impoverished. But having sold her long hair to buy her husband a chain for his pocket watch, the husband's gift of a beautiful set of combs is now useless for his wife. But she held them to her heart, the story goes, and at last was able to look up and say, my hair grows so fast. And having sold his father's pocket watch to pay for the combs, the chain that she gives to him is now useless as well. So he tells her, let's put our Christmas gifts away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use right now. I sold the watch to get the money to buy the combs, and now I think we should have our dinner. And though the gifts themselves are rendered useless by the giving, they now represent the true cost of self-sacrificial generosity and love in a way that no useful gift could have done. The world has loved that story for more than a century now because we understand that true giving, like love, is by nature self-sacrificial, that something more happens in the giving than can be represented by the gift itself. Like my friends who were there for me at great personal expense, they bought plane tickets, and what they did became something more than the sum of its parts. It wasn't just that now Abby can come and that, oh, I could enjoy my friend's company. It's that they did those things. And know this, when you give to the church, your gift is also received by God himself, which is an incredible concept to begin to fathom. Think of Paul's language that we read earlier. They are a pleasing or a fragrant offering, acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to who? God. You are not giving ultimately to Paul or to Van City or to me or Cam or Levi. It is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. I've known people who withheld giving because they were upset with a choice that the church made or they were mad at one of its leaders or something like that. But ultimately, they're withholding not just from the church, but from God. And Paul's is a powerful metaphor. In ancient Israel's uh, in ancient Israel, Jews would come to the temple to make sacrifices, and the livestock and crops that they offered were akin to a kind of currency. And the sacrifice was, in essence, in essence a gift to God, a financial gift to God. But a percentage was set aside for the priests who worked at the temple every day to enable this place of worship to function in the first place. And that was a system that God made up. God set it in place. So even though the gift provided a wage for the temple priest, it was a gift and a sacrifice intended for and received by God himself. And Paul is picking up on all of that and saying, all these centuries later, now the same thing is true of Jesus and of the church. And the act of giving to God is a gesture of trust in God as the ultimate provider. Now, remember my mini rant a few minutes ago about the prosperity gospel. The idea is not that you do for God and God will do for you. The idea is that when you practice radical self-sacrificial giving, when you tap into God's heart and character, you are learning to embody and believe that beautiful lyric from the psalmist, God is my shepherd, thus I lack nothing. 
Now, if you're thinking, how can I possibly give? I have so little. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm not ready to sacrifice my own finances. Or maybe you're thinking, oh man, can my budget take the hit in this season of my life? Understand Paul's words. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in King Jesus. You will have what you need, and you will only learn to see that when you step into giving, not before. But please hear this as well. When you refuse to practice generosity, this also shapes you. You learn to see what you have as never enough, to always want just a little bit more, to believe the lie that if you just had X, then you would be content. But when you step out, even a little bit at a time, into giving, and you take up the practice more and more, and you start to see God's generosity everywhere, and you are more and more grateful for it all the time because you are made in God's image, and God is generous. He gives. When you are not generous, and when you do not give, you distort God's image in you, and you become more and more inclined to see all of God's generosity as not enough. But when you tap into God's heart, you become overwhelmed by the ever-present generosity of God. Those of you who give know this well. And then you're inclined to worship in reciprocation by giving, because giving is an act of worship. There's a reason that when someone stands up here to talk about giving week after week, they almost always say, we are going to continue to worship by giving finances. And I realize this sounds like a sappy analogy, but have you ever been a gift, been given a gift so meaningful that your immediate genuine reaction was, without saying anything, to just embrace the gift giver? Or have you seen children on Christmas morning that they're so delighted by the extravagance of their parents' generosity that they lose any sense of composure even for small children and they shout and scream and dance in place? Have you ever wanted so badly to find the perfect, most meaningful gift for someone you love, not for any sense of social pressure or desire to impress anyone or, or honestly even for any real practical, practical usefulness the gift might hold, but just because you realize that this is an opportunity to express with one simple gesture how much that person means to you. Giving is worship. We already know this. Thus, the final line in the text we read tonight is, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. How else do you conclude a passage about giving and generosity than worship? Now, whew, deep breath. Thank you guys for your patience. Before we end, I want to give you guys kind of a, a candid update, if I may, about our church. In March, we will, by the grace of God, celebrate our seventh anniversary of gathering like this on Sunday evenings. Um, hopefully one day uh, we can gather on Sunday mornings like a normal church, but until that day comes, here we are on Sunday evenings. Um, I started working for Van City before we had a Sunday gathering a year before that. Um, so it's been some of the best most beautiful, most difficult, painful, wonderful years of my life, quite honestly. Whatever happens, if tonight was the last gathering of Van City Church, I would be shaped by these years in this community and many of you um, for the rest of my life. It's not hyperbole or sentimentality. This is quite frankly the truth. And I think, I, don't, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think the same is likely true for some of you. Um, some of you have told me as much, and I believe you. And there are all sorts of areas in which our church is uniquely gifted and uniquely capable, like any church. Um, but we've been pretty honest with you guys for a while now that our journey with giving has been wild and winding and up and down and forward and backward and then forward again. And I realize most of you have heard this before, but in a nutshell, here's the financial history of Van City Church. What's more exciting? Um, we were planted, if you didn't know, by Bridgetown Church in Portland, and they sent us across the river to start a church with a generous nest egg in our savings account. They had saved up money for a church plant for years, and they said, go take this, start a church. For the first few years of Van City, and this is not hyperbole, we never made budget for giving. Not any single month, not any single year. In fact, giving was so scant that Bridgetown's gift almost exclusively financed Van City Church on every level. Meaning, if we had been, like many church plants are, not sent out by a mega church with a mega budget, you know, like many churches, just a group of people that had an idea, honestly, we would have been over years ago. That would have been the end of that. 
So realizing that this was a problem, we started talking about it as a church, started being vulnerable, we started praying and working and practicing, and things started changing in a huge way. And then, I don't know if you guys know this, but some stuff happened across the last couple of years, yada, 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 global pandemic, half the church turned over, and we sort of had to start over, like, like most churches, honestly, and our journey with generosity sort of started over, too. For much of the last fiscal year, month after month, we did make budget, and that's discouraging, yes, but the Spirit of God was also working in people in situations for the sake of our church. Now, this is weird stuff, but the government kept throwing checks at us during COVID that we weren't soliciting, but we said, hey, look at that. And, uh, and, and then on top of that, generous benefactors who have never even been inside our church would hear us talking about this stuff on our podcast and send us huge checks in the mail from elsewhere in the country, elsewhere in the world. Um, we had to relocate offices twice through no fault of anyone. And one supporter of Van City in a whole other state single-handedly alleviated that huge financial burden with a single check. He said, here, I want this to cover the offices for the next year. Don't even worry about that thing that you're going through. And this is not, that kind of thing not only kept us alive, it enabled our church to escape panic and to escape layoffs and downsizing. And to our surprise, despite a long stretch of lousy giving, we actually got together as a team, looked at the finances, looked at the bank, crunched all the numbers. I mean, we do that month to month, but in a kind of deep way, transitioning from one bank to another, blah, 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 a lot of stuff that's really boring. Uh, and we actually found ourselves financially stable because of the generosity of other people and because you guys over the last few months have um, been growing in the discipline of generosity. And so we will end the year in the black. Is that the good one? Yeah, yeah it should be, right? Yeah. Uh, we will end the year in the black. Um, and so we have started to grow again, which is a beautiful thing. I've been telling you guys, we kept the last couple of months. We've made budget, not just from other people sending us big checks, but because of people inside the church giving you, me, us, we started making budget, not depending on Bridgetown's savings account and not depending on checks from outsiders. God has been, in other words, and still is providing for this church within and without it's really incredible. And these are not people that I'm sending letters to, like, please help us do something. This is just stuff that happens. It's really incredible. And across these many years, we have worked hard to be above reproach with our finances as a church. And I'm not saying this is any kind of brag, because you'll hear in a minute, it has very little to do with me. In the early years, we hired a team to work with our budget, taxes, and stuff like HR and accounting. And so it wasn't all up to people like me who don't know how to do that stuff, quite frankly. And so that we could be responsible and not, you know, be tax dodgers like apparently most churches are without even realizing it. And we set our budget based on the amount of people in Van City communities. And we kind of looked at like 10% of the median income in Vancouver, knowing that, you know, some people make much less than that. Some people make much more than that. And a church of our size, if it gives in a healthy, consistent way, we can and should make the budget that we have. You know, obviously there's variables there, but consulting from other people who know about that stuff, that's where we're at. We have consistently, throughout the years, consulted other trustworthy churches and church planters and leaders before we make financial decisions. Um, we've been working with the overseers of Bridgetown Church even this year, in the last few months, as we set our budget and plan for the future year. We've practiced frugality as a church to the degree that Scott, who's one of our overseers, and he's also an accountant, he keeps telling us, and this is not, you know, stand-up routine I'm doing, he actually says in our budget meetings, guys, you have to actually spend the money that we budget. Every, you know, that comes back and it's like, okay, we said this much, spent zero dollars, because we sit around in a meeting like, yeah, but we have to actually pay for stuff. What if we, you know... So our staff tries to avoid spending to a degree that is probably too much. We've given 10% of the church's income year after year to justice causes here in the city and around the world. We have an internal committee that doesn't work for the church, but who makes decisions about what our staff gets paid, meaning that we do that to protect us from internal corruption. I can't make any decisions about what I or anyone else gets paid. I can't set my own numbers. I can't set Cam's numbers so that he'll set my numbers, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and the people that make those decisions aren't paid by the church. We have overseers on our uh, overseer team who are not paid by the church so that trustworthy leaders with no possible financial incentive are also making the major decisions about our money that lead the church forward. All that to say, we are really trying 
No, we are not perfect, and I'm sure that we've made mistakes, but we are working all the time to seek counsel, protect our integrity, and accept wisdom from people who know more than we do, we do so that we can handle God's money and God's church with integrity. But, and please hear me on this, even though our bank account is sound right now, and even though we'll make budget this year, and even if our leadership does everything in their power to steward those finances well, it all still hangs on generosity and giving. Because what Jesus said is true. The way you spend your money reveals what's actually important to you. Thus, according to Jesus, not just me, you can look at a budget graph and actually see how much a church matters to its family. So we are learning to care for one another. And I feel hopeful, honestly. I feel no need to soothe our predicaments with unrealistic or blind optimism. And I also feel no need to deflate hope with pessimistic realism. I feel as though God is our shepherd. We lack nothing. I don't think that that means that God will supernaturally pay our bills every single month, even if we don't grow in generosity. He's given us a tremendous amount of responsibility. Lots of churches, very good churches, filled with the Spirit of God, have closed their doors without the money to keep them open. But I believe we're growing and that we can tap into the heart of God and be changed more and more as a result. I believe this because I've seen it in many of you. I have experienced it in my own life and in the story of this church. There are stories of incredible generosity here, and there can be more stories like that. They can become the norm for our church. So to end, two humble requests and we'll worship, if I may. The first is just to give. It's really that simple. Please listen to me when I say this. I know this from my own experience and from the stories of a dozen other people. If you place a qualification before your giving, I'll start giving when, dot, 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 you will probably never give. If you say to yourself, I'll give when my income hits this number or when I'm sure the church deserves it or when I have time to get more organized or write up a better budget, you'll make a new qualifier and then a new one and a new one. I'll be obedient to King Jesus later. The secret is to simply begin. A detailed budget is fantastic. If you're an adult, you should absolutely have one. But don't wait on everything to be in a perfect row before you start giving. Don't wait for financial excess or even financial stability because both are fleeting. And your giving, like prayer or worship, cannot be contingent on things beyond your control. Like any other spiritual discipline, you will likely never be in every way prepared before you begin. You just have to start. So my other humble request is if you're looking for a way to start or a place to start, begin with 10%. We actually have an app, futuristic technology, um, push pay it's called. You can sign up for uh, recurring payments every single paycheck or month or whatever it is for you based on that 10% paradigm. Start with the 10%. Tithing, remember, is an art form. It's wisdom from the scriptures. And then grow into generosity, radical generosity, as a practice from every single paycheck. Don't stop there. Ask God regularly and consistently, what now, Lord? More? Where do I give? How much do I give? How often do I give? Who needs my resources? Who needs my money? How can I be generous? And yes, this is absolutely about the future and the stability of Van City Church, but it's also about your discipleship to Jesus. I know it's probably easy to assume that I'm up here in arms about Van City's bottom line or something, but honestly, and I say this with a tremendous amount of sincere kindness, I'm not scared. I'm not worried. I'm not fretful. I see the numbers every week. I know this year has had its bad months financially, and the last have been wonderful, and the checks from donors could dry up. Maybe they won't come. And I've had to confront the, the unpredictability of finances before God. And I've asked myself, quite frankly, if our church, like so many others, did close its doors one final Sunday because of finances, what would we do? And I thought, well, I would start by thanking God for these years, and then I would ask him what's next. So I'm not scared, I'm not despairing, but I don't want that to be our story. I've learned to see this like every other aspect of our discipleship and the way we grow into it. I want to see a community of people. It's fine with me if it's small, it's fine with me if it's you know mostly young, whatever, but a community of people 
or learning to pray, learning how to hear God's voice, learning how to prophesy, learning how to read and understand the scriptures, learning to truly love God and one another, and learning how to give themselves away, learning how to embody radical generosity. I can already tell so many amazing stories about men and women here, communities, families who have walked with Jesus into more healing, more freedom, who have, by the grace of God, learned and matured and are walking faithfully with Jesus. That's been my story in this church. I want this to be part of our story as well going forward in the years to come that we learned to be generous together. That was part of Van City's story. I don't want a handful of generous, wealthy people to carry our church. I want all of us, the very poorest among us, to learn the paradoxical freedom of giving and to be able to say with integrity, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to guide and teach us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.